We continue in Genesis this morning with Genesis 4, uh, starting verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the first fruit, firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its fruit, its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, I have driven me, you have driven me today away from the ground, and your face, I, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nob, east of Eden. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, as we come together to commune with God as the community that he's called and to learn compassion for our neighbor, we really need God to be the one at work as we go to his word, so let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would speak. We pray, Lord, that we would hear. We ask that you would speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Why do people do what they do? You ever wonder that? I wonder it all the time. I think when you're a parent, you obviously wonder it often. Uh, But when you're a child, right, you look at your parents and you think, why do they do what they do? Um, when you're married, you wonder this. When you have roommates, <laughs> you wonder this. Uh, you wonder this about your friends, don't you? Uh, sometimes in good ways, but often you wonder about the poor decisions they make. Malcolm Gladwell, the, uh, the journalist and author, has a, a really interesting podcast uh, 
coyishly titled Revisionist History. But uh, in the first season of that podcast, he had an episode about Wilt Chamberlain. I don't know if you know who Wilt Chamberlain is. Uh, If you're a basketball fan, you probably do. Uh, Wilt was one of the greatest of all time, played in the 50s and 60s. So I never saw him play. Uh, I know (laughs) I've read about him. I've seen some clips. Uh, But the thing about Wilt Chamberlain is that he was seven foot one, 275 pounds, and not a gangly seven foot guy. Was powerful, uh, had finesse. He was unbelievably dominant. He played for uh, what was then the Philadelphia Warriors. And uh, over the course of the, the, the 1961 and 62 season, and some of you are already checking out, hang with me. Over the course of that season, he averaged 50 points a game, which is unreal, just un, un, an unreal amount. Of, and on March 2nd, 1962, he famously scored 100 points in a game. That is crazy. There are games where teams don't score 100 points. This is, it was, it was unreal. And the thing was, he shot in that game from the free throw line, you know, when he gets fouled, he goes to the free throw line. He shot 87.5%. Here's the deal. For almost his whole career, he was a terrible free throw shooter. Sometimes, some seasons averaging below 40%. Uh, this, is, this is what Gladwell says. He says, he was a man who could score at will with two or three, sometimes three defenders draped all over his body, but if you put him all alone, 15 feet from the basket, he was hopeless. Except for that one season. Because that season, he decided that he would shoot granny style from the free throw line. You know what granny style is? My apologies to any grandmothers. For the, for the nickname. You know, most, most basketball players, because when you're, when you're in the middle of the game, right, you shoot over your head because you want to shoot over the other players, right? That's how most people continue to shoot at the free throw line. But you could bring the ball down near your knees and kind of lob it up. And the deal is the granny shot is actually a much higher percentage shot because it's gentler It's got a softer touch. It's actually easier if you're fatigued, right? Late in the game, it's actually easier on your body, everything. It's easier. Nobody shoots it. Will Chamberlain decided for one season that he would give it a try, and he dominated the game. The one weakness in his game was no longer a weakness. He scored 100 points in a game, but at the end of the season, he stopped. Why? I don't, th- I don't think he ever went on record explaining, but I think the answer is obvious. He just didn't want to be a guy that shot the granny shot. It got him 100 points in a game, but he didn't want to be that guy. Now, this is, that's obviously a story about a basketball player shooting granny shots, which is kind of silly, but it had everything to do with his own self-image. Our story this morning, the stakes are much higher. Somebody's life. But this story gives us practical insight into the outworking of sin. 
we are seeing the fruit of what Adam and Eve did in the previous chapter that we looked at for several weeks. This is really the fruit of it, and it begins with worship. It feeds a delusion, and it is only broken with God's revelation. So it begins with worship, it feeds a delusion, and it's only broken with revelation. So, did you notice the main action of this story starts with worship? Cain and Abel bring sacrifices to God. And this is really curious. Uh, Abel, his sacrifice is obviously accepted, and Cain's is rejected. And you, you should slow down for a minute because it's easy to pass over these details and, and, and give, a, give a close ear to what's, how it's described. Abel's offering is described in ways that later, in books like Leviticus, the, the right kind of sacrifice is described. So there's technical language for sacrifices used. It's supposed to be a firstborn, it was a firstborn from the flock, just like the sacrifices you were supposed to offer in Leviticus. And he's offering up the fat portions, in other words, the richest meat, the, the most prized, which is also part of what you're supposed to offer. Now, we're not told that God gave them directions. We don't know what, how much he said. But remember this, that this is the first of the books of Moses. That the people who first received Genesis were the same people that received Leviticus. So they would have heard here, oh, this is a guy offering the right kind of sacrifice. This is a sacrifice that honors God. By contrast, Cain... His, the, the description of what he offers is pretty generic. Now, there were some, there were some grain and, and, and offerings and things like that that were offered at times in the Old Testament law, but he is, we're not told that it's the first fruits of his crop. It just, the impression you're given is he just kind of picked up whatever's laying around and brought it to God. And whatever the case is, you see the difference is that Cain just kind of wanted God to rubber stamp whatever he brought. And Abel was being attentive to the Lord. That's why Hebrews tells us, uh, in Hebrews 11 in the New Testament, we're told, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his sacrifice. So, in other words, he brought it by faith. Because faith wasn't, it isn't so much that if you just pay attention to the rules, right? It's that if you're paying attention to God, right? Abel is being attentive to God and Cain is not. So the difference then in terms of worship is whose agenda are we more concerned with? And look, there is all kinds of worship that's out there and available to us. And the question is, who are we most attentive to? Are we attentive to our own desires most? Or are we attentive to the character of God? Now look, there's lots of traditional worship, and pagan worship actually was just like this, right? Uh, we are worried about fertility, so there's a fertility god or goddess, right? We are worried about the rain, we're worried about all these other things. And so pagan worship and all the proliferation of various gods in the ancient world 
always corresponded pretty clearly to the needs of the community. And of course, skeptics for a long time have criticized religion in general as meeting that need. And look, even, I I dare to say, most world religions, while they may not be as nakedly about meeting immediate needs, they are about bringing your own self-worth to the table. So, if you will submit to these five pillars, if you will follow this fourfold path, if you will follow your dharma, then you will be worthy. Even, I, I dare say, many forms of Christianity take on that same deviant expression, right? That if you are good enough, if you're worthy enough, which is just another way of saying it's about us. It's about what we bring to the table. We expect God to respond to us. And look, you don't have to be following a specific world religion to have this kind of phenomena. There's, in fact, a lot being written now about new forms of religion that are ostensibly secular, or at least uh, not following standard religious practice. One interesting book about this is called Strange Rites by, uh, by a journalist, Tara Isabella Burton. Uh, so she, she describes this phenomena, uh, a coalition, she calls it, of se- several different types of folks in America that, as she breaks down, add up to at, le- at least conservatively 50% of the American population. Those who are religiously unaffiliated, those who are spiritual but not religious, uh, and those that she calls religious hybrids who may still identify with one tradition but kind of freely borrow from others. So you might be Christian, but you don't mind borrowing some Buddhist practice, that sort of thing. And, she, and as she goes through her list, she talks about some of these new religions. She calls fandom a new religion. Uh, because some people have completely oriented their lives around that. Now, you can, of course, be the kind of fan that is the butt of like a Saturday Night Live skit. But I knew some people at Harvard Divinity School who ran a podcast about reading Harry Potter as a sacred text. It was, actually had a pretty big following. So there's fandom, there's wellness culture, you know, soul cycle, CrossFit, these sorts of things that provide, again, all of these, what do they do? They provide meaning and purpose and community. And you always know somebody belongs to a CrossFit gym because they will definitely evangelize it. Uh, she points out there's a, a, been a kind of modern occultist movement. Uh, so witchcraft has become much more popular uh, in recent years. And then she hits on some others that might have a little more mainstream sting. Social justice activism as the source, again, a place where you seek out your meaning and purpose and community. Techno-utopianism, this hope in, the, in this kind of technological future, and of course, maybe obviously sexual revolutionaries. There's another interesting book by a guy named David Zoll that I, I think I've quoted before called Seculosity, where he identifies uh, a bunch of these. David Zoll's books are really fascinating. But the point is this, really, that you can reject 
doctrinal and institutional forms of religion. But you will always find some place to seek out meaning. You can't hedge off the existential demand for reassurance. You need meaning and purpose and community. We will always seek it out. And even if we seek it in secular forms, we are still asking the same thing. We are still projecting our desires onto the universe. We are still asking that we be considered enough, good enough, important enough, significant enough. So all of these forms of worship then are primarily expressive. They are demanding that God respond to who we are, that the universe respond to who we are. But but here's what's interesting. Biblical worship is formative. It it isn't to say we don't bring our emotions and our baggage, our sin. (laughs) We definitely bring that into worship. But we recognize that all of that needs to be formed, needs to be changed, needs to be given perspective from God. You can see how radical the difference is, right? But so often, again, even in the Christian church, we think about our worship as giving voice to what we want and who we are. But what God is saying is, no, come to me. And I will help you see the truth of what you are. So it begins with worship. Look, even the the funniest and most awkward things and the most insidious things that that sin brings begin with worship because they begin by us seeking meaning and purpose somewhere. And that leads to a delusion. Actually, the delusion you can see has been at work in Cain's life for quite a long time. Because if you go back to verses 1 and 2, we find out a few interesting things. We find out that, you know, Adam and Eve, things didn't go well, but they leave, and they're still able to be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> they have a son, and they name him Cain. In, in, in typical narrative format, when we're told that a kid is born and given a name, the parent tells us why it was important. I've gotten a man. The word Cain in Hebrew means gotten or acquired, earned. Cain is an achievement. His name means achievement. And, and look, he goes, he's the oldest, oldest son. And if you know anything about the ancient world, And this is true across cultures. It's actually still true in many traditional cultures in the world. The oldest, and particularly the oldest son, is valued above everybody else. It wasn't just a tendency in the ancient world. It was an ironclad rule. Cain is an achievement. He's the firstborn, and he goes on to do the respectable thing. He's a landowner. Again, in the ancient world, to be a farmer meant that you owned land. People probably worked for you. It was a good thing. It was the respectable job. By contrast, Abel's a shepherd. And shepherds were not well respected. There are later ironies we'll see in the Bible that David, for example, was a shepherd. That there are shepherds that get invited to come to see Jesus. But that is always an ironic turn. 
the person you don't expect. Abel, because it's kind of gross working with the animals. You know, it's just kind of messy. And you're out in the, you know, particularly when you're out with sheep, you're sleeping outside overnight and doing these other things. Uh, so it's kind of gross. Abel did not have a well-respected job. And more telling is the way that he's named. Because, again, breaking with the kind of narrative convention in the Bible, we're told he's given a name, but then nobody comments on it. And, in fact, his name in Hebrew is Hevel. And that word is telling. Because the word Hebel means breath, nothingness, worthless. In fact, later, in, later on, when God sometimes is referring to worthless idols, that's the translation in most of your modern Bibles. God, when you read that, word, that, that term, worthless idols, it's usually just this word, Hevelim, the worthless things. It's most obvious at the beginning of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes 1-2, we read, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Guess what word keeps getting repeated? Hevel. So Cain is acquisition. And Abel is nothing. You can see the family narrative already. Crystal clear, can't you? Cain is told from the beginning that he is great. He's really the best. And I know we think that this isn't what families do, but it is what families do, isn't it? And we so often communicate what we value and that we end up valuing one child over another. It happens again and again. And it's obviously sinful. I'm not justifying that in any way. And my point is that it's that delusion that is so destructive for Cain. Because his, over and over again, through his life, he is seen as the one who is worthwhile, who's, who's an acquisition, whose achievement itself. But when God rejects his offering, he goes into crisis. Because what God says about him is at odds with the delusion that he's lived with his whole life. The delusion his parents <laughs> reinforced. And he can, can't take it. God even comes and warns him, doesn't he, in verse 6 and 7. God tells him, look, you're about to stumble into sin. Actually, the way he puts it, right, is sin is crouching at your door. Like an animal, like a predator. That's right there, ready to overtake him. God warns him about it, and instead of stopping and reflecting that maybe this narrative that he's created about himself is false, he would rather continue in the delusion. And the only way of maintaining the delusion of his superiority is to kill his brother, is to bring his brother low in the worst possible way. And you can still see he's trying to live with this delusion when God shows up again, right, and asks him, where is your brother? And what is his response at the end of verse 9? Am I my brother's keeper? And to any reader, the obvious answer is, yeah, you were supposed to be. 
but not to Cain, because he's living with this delusion. You see, this is the problem with our worship so often, is that it reinforces this narrative of that we are great, that what we're doing is obviously important, obviously significant, that the things we're concerned about are obviously the most important things. We worship those things. We invest our time and our energy, so they must be true. Because how awful is it, right, to realize that the thing that you put all this time and energy and effort into, and especially when it's about your sense of meaning and purpose in life, to find that that was a waste of time. To find that it wasn't worth what you thought it was worth. That's a terrible realization. But it's important to actually see it, right? Because when we try to reinforce our delusions, we are buying into a source of meaning and purpose that is flimsy at best. And little wonder that it is, of course, our religious disposition that leads us to judging others, to even becoming outraged when they question what we're about or when they fail to live up to it. Of course, that is a well-documented, well-documented feature of most organized religion, looking down on others. But it's also a feature of all those new religions, we, secular religions we were talking about. I mean, take a couple of them, for example, the wellness culture. Now look, stewarding your body that God gave you is a good thing. Some of us could probably steward a little better than we, need, than we are, but... But, here's the deal. If, you, if your sense of meaning and purpose is in how healthy and fit you are, that is a punishing, punishing God. Because, there's this little thing that comes for all of us called age, and it just gets harder. It's hard to be the 20-year-old version of yourself. I used to joke with college students when I was working with them that you're probably about as good looking as you're going to get right about now. They didn't like hearing that. Um, But look, age comes for you, right? Various responsibilities in life are demanding on you, on your body. I mean, some of you have given birth to children. Some of you have endured sickness. And all of us eventually will various stresses on life, you get the picture, right? And if you think it, your sense of meaning is tied to your ability to stay fit and super healthy, you are going to die a thousand deaths. Or you will destroy yourself in the process. Again, working with college students, you certainly heard your fair share of eating disorder stories. But the statistics tell us that it's not just a college problem. Uh, I, did have, I, I do have some friends that are very into CrossFit. And that's fine. Nothing wrong with CrossFit in and of itself. But, you know, there's actually this, there's this syndrome that a lot of CrossFit people have actually uh, 
manifested called rhabdomyolysis, or I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, they all call it rhabdo for short. It's the thing you don't want to do. It's where you push your body so hard that literally your, your muscles are dying because you, you're overworking them so much all the time, and then that leads to like kidney failure and all these other things. It, could, it can actually be deadly. Um, why would you do that to yourself? Except that your sense of meaning and purpose is tied up in it. And you're in a community that asks you to push yourself over and over and over again beyond what your body is able to do. Again, I don't mean to be too hard on CrossFit. It's fine. Unless it's where you get your sense of meaning and purpose. Think about social activism. Look, there are wonderful causes to support. There are injustices that we need to bring to light and to challenge. And in fact, the Bible tells us to do so. There are ideals for our city, our state, our country that are worth pursuing and forwarding and encouraging. All those things are true. And yet, and yet, how many awful conversations have you been in where if someone doesn't exactly agree with you, if someone's priorities aren't exactly your priorities, it is treated as unforgivable. Uh, is, Is social justice wrong? No. No. But when it becomes your religion, you will become an intolerable person. And more than that, you will run after every cause that comes along. So you can be religious or you can be secular, but you're always worshiping something. And so in the telltale sign, of course, Jesus helped us see in Luke 18, where he tells a parable. And actually, this is how, this is how Luke, Luke gives a little editorial comment at the beginning. This is what he says. Uh, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went away to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Where do you seek for purpose and meaning? The telltale sign is that you live with the delusion that you are a better person than others. And that isn't moral relativism. I'm not saying there aren't right answers and wrong answers, but when you think that you are better, because you have the right answers, watch out. You're in the grip of a delusion. 
So ask yourself, what are the things that you sacrifice? Where is it that you think your actions, your performance, your merit make you better? Where do you sacrifice friends, family, career? What do you sacrifice them for? Sometimes we're even proud of that collateral damage in our lives. I gave up all that for this. We count those as marks of achievement. But this is why, throughout the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament, you can look at James 1, you can look at 1 Peter 1, we're told that trials are essential for the Christian life because trials test our faith. And that testing leads to steadfastness. That like fire... They prove what we really value. The dross gets burned up and the gold remains. Because if you endure the test, if you endure the test, the delusion is shattered. You see yourself more clearly. More than that, you see what you really trust and love. Which I guess gets us to this last point that God has to reveal what we need. You notice that God is the one who breaks the delusion. Verse 10, he tells, he tells Cain, Abel's blood is crying out to me. <laughs> don't tell me you don't know what's going on. I know what's going on. And again, there's that image later on in verse 11 of the, the ground opening up to swallow his blood. I mean, it's God uses grim, evocative language to shatter the delusion. Cain, don't you get it? Don't you see what you've done? So God comes, and notice this, while he is direct, while he shatters his image, he's still asking him questions. Every time God shows up, he asks a question, just like he did with Adam and Eve. Because to get to the truth, he's not seeking the answer. He already knows the answer. He's inviting Cain to engage him. And of course, Cain is afraid. Verses 13 and 14, that not only of the shame that he'll have to bear, but he realizes that finally, that what he's done makes him an untrustworthy person. That everyone who sees him is going to see him as a dangerous person. Because the truth is, he is. But God's response is telling. See, he says, not so. This is verse 15. Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Now, the word vengeance is not blood feud language. It is actually judicial language. Uh, it's a little hard to... Tell in English, it sounds like the language of blood feud, but this is, this is actually language used about governance, right, <laughs> and retribution for evil. God is saying, look, I have judged you. I've passed judgment. You're out. You've got to go. Now, I'm not saying he's, like, totally passed judgment on his soul at this point, but <laughs> for the rest of his life, right, he will live as a wanderer, as a fugitive, but God is going to spare his life. And so he gives a mark 
as a sign of mercy. That if anybody does, everybody challenges that. If anybody takes his life, they're actually challenging God's judgment. It is a sign of protection. Curiously enough, God does give signs of protection elsewhere. In Ezekiel 9, there's a picture of where somebody, probably Jesus, is, is predicted as, as we're told they're going to put in a vision that they're going to put a mark on the forehead of all that, that mourn the idolatry in Jerusalem. In Revelation 7 and in Revelation 14, we're told the Spirit puts a mark on all who belong to Jesus. Also on their forehead. You see, this is the gospel. It's not that you earned anything, but that Jesus has earned it for you. And this is the fundamental difference between false worship and true worship. It is the thing that shatters the delusions that we live with. Is confronting Jesus. Seeing his blood spilled for us. Because there we learn the truth about who we are. And if we are left to our own devices, what we deserve. But we are not left to our own devices because God did not leave us to our own devices. God instead sent his son on our behalf. And so in this like, burst, of, <laughs> this burst of celebration in Hebrews 12, there's this fascinating moment where, uh, you know, it's kind of a rhetorical crescendo uh, where the author of Hebrews says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the, righteous, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, that's Jesus' blood, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. A better word than the blood of Abel. Because Abel's blood cried out for justice, but Jesus' blood declares that justice is fulfilled. For anybody that is in Jesus, his blood is testimony that you are not the sum of what you've accomplished. That you can be honest about who you are, about your failings, about your sin, but that we come to God not based on our own sense of significance, but trusting in Jesus, that Jesus is worth more than we could ever be. And Jesus brings in all who follow him, all who have faith in him, all who trust in him. So by contrast, you see where, where the sacrifices of false religion make us proud and arrogant, the sacrifices we make are not a source of pride, but of humility. Indeed, when we have to sacrifice friendships, they're lamentable. <laughs> because we want all to come to the free grace of Jesus. And instead of pride, we are called to love and good deeds. Not as the condition for coming, but the result of coming. Because I don't have anything left to prove. 
And so I can actually go out and love others, even my enemies. I can seek out their well-being. Which all leads us back to worship, doesn't it? And that the worship that's acceptable to God is not coming on our own merit, but coming on the merit of Jesus. Coming by faith. Looking for God's initiative. Looking for God to change and transform our lives. Again, we don't come as a blank slate. But we come to see our lives anew, to see them afresh, to see the ways in which we've been hurt and the ways in which we've hurt others differently as opportunities for repentance and forgiveness, as opportunities to live out the very love that Jesus has given us towards others. You see, real worship, the worship of the true and living God, leads us into humility because the basis of it is His grace. Activated, real, tangible by the blood of Jesus for you, even this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we come to You not on our own merits. We come to You because of what Jesus has accomplished. And Lord, we know if we were to bring our own uh, achievements to you, that that would be pretty worthless. But in Jesus, but in Jesus is a different story. We come because you love us, because Jesus gave his life for us, because you sent the Son out of love for us, out of your consistent, persistent desire to bring us to you. So we come with humility, and we can be spurred on towards love. Lord, I pray that that would be our hearts this morning as we leave here, that being refreshed and renewed in who we are in Jesus, we would love you more and learn to love each other better. We ask in Christ's name, amen.